Hello friends, welcome back. My guest today is Andy No, journalist and an author. Andy has been on the front row for some of the most radical, intense rioting in America, including the barricading of cities downtown, shootings, calls to defund the police, and attacks on federal buildings. So today expect to learn what it was like going undercover with Antifa in Seattle's Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, how it feels to live in Portland where Antifa are most prevalent, whether Andy thinks the Capitol Hill riots would have happened if Trump had won, and much more. You will be familiar with Andy from the internet. He is the number one guy who understands what is happening with Antifa and this anarcho-communist movement that's sweeping America. Some pretty scary takeaways, but I think it's really important for everybody to be informed. And being frank, I'm just glad that I live in the UK where we seem to not be swayed as much by this sort of crazy mentality. No matter where you are from, though, I would like you to press that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. It only takes two seconds to do, and it would make me very happy indeed. We charted in the top 30 last week on Apple Podcasts chart, and your boy wants to hit the top 10. So just navigate to the little, little podcast app and press subscribe for me. I thank you. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym-proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout this episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, 
and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days, and if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Andy No. Was getting people to scream, stop selling Andy No's book in your hometown a part of your marketing strategy? It's pretty good free advertising. Uh, it was not part of the strategy, but uh, a lot of people did end up hearing about the book because of the six-day efforts by Antifa to get it banned, which uh, unfortunately was partially successful in that Portland's largest bookstore uh, immediately came out and said they would not stock it on its shelves. And this is a bookstore, by the way, um, a very popular Portland institution that every year dedicates um, a week to books that are censored and banned. So um, there's sad irony there. Too banned to be part of the unbanned book week. Correct. That's serious. But obviously, the elephant in the room is that almost everyone's going to buy your book from Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or whatever. Yeah, I hope so. And I, I mean, I'm just, you know, the goal is to get people informed about what's happening. And I think there's a lot of um, misconceptions about Antifa out there from both the left and the right. And uh, this book tries to explain in, in one place where people can understand um, the ideology, the history and how they organize and what, what all that comes together actually looks like in practice. So I go into detail particularly of what happened in the Pacific Northwest of the United States throughout 2020, uh, my home city of Portland, which I've had to flee because of death threats against me. We had um, more than 120 nightly days of violence. So uh, in your country, Britain, you had sporadic violence that happened uh, last year. Um, imagine if that was reoccurring day after day after day for months on end, and that's what happened in my city. And it's still ongoing. <sighs> It's terrifying, man. So let's start. Who are Antifa? The Antifa claim to be anti-fascists. They're actually anarchist communists who are really working to destabilize governments, particularly the jurisdictions in the United States, because they want to ultimately overthrow the U.S. So they take inspiration from historical anarchist communist communes. And they try to carry out these experiments wherever they can. And to do so in America was always a pipe dream for them, given how strong law enforcement institutions are and the military, etc. But in 2020, things just completely was flipped upside down when after George Floyd died, then the 
every excuse on the fringe extreme far left to carry out violence was excused in the mainstream left. And it was in that context that Antifa BLM, for example, in Seattle, the largest city in the Pacific Northwest, they actually claimed sovereign territory or territory that they said was sovereign from the United States for more than three weeks. And they actually had the blessing of the city council as well as the mayor. And immediately this, despite what the media was saying, describing it as a block party, summer of love. Um, I spent time there a week undercover, right about that in the book. Um, it devolved um, within days into an area where there were shootings and people ended up getting killed and murdered there. What's the end goal that Antifa want? Antifa's vision of so-called anti-fascism means a world without nation states, without borders, without capitalism. Because, and this is where their ideology is very based on these old left-wing theories, particularly um, critical theories of where these are, there are these interlocking systems of oppression. So they believe, for example, the U.S. is a fascist imperialistic state because it's a state that propagates capitalism around the world and capitalism uh, uh, is what is linked to white supremacy and racism and fascism as well. So they're wanting to and not just the United States, but I think more what we're seeing now, like where they're actually having success is delegitimizing and attacking systematically the ideas that make up the United States or actually any Western liberal democracy. So they go extremely hard against freedom of expression. That's one of their core tenets. That's why they carry out acts of wanton political violence against their political opponents, because in their um, remaking of words, um, violence is not actual violence. It's having the wrong idea. So when they are attacking people that they accuse of being fascist or white supremacists, um, and they use that label on anyone, by the way, um, in their mind, they call it self-defense because if you have the idea uh, that they called fascist, that is an attack on them. Therefore, they need to preemptively physically attack you and destroy property. And, you know, this is all it's it's, you know, it would be like I would like to just laugh because it's so outrageous and obviously um, a, a charade and a farce, but a farce. But um, unfortunately, they've been given legitimacy in our papers, a record in, in, in your country as well as mine. And people who are on the left, but not the extreme fringe far left, have become allies with them because they really do think that uh, when Trump was elected, that that was um, ascendant American fascism, that we were on the precipice of another Holocaust. All of this was bogus, uh, and it was um, just... Uh, a pretense for them to carry out their agendas of destabilizing governments, local local governments, and they've been able to do that with quite success. Um, and I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying, and you can readers can see in the book how, because the local officials gave them the space to do what they were doing for so long throughout 2020, they really have created an embedded 
these networks and systems to maintain riots ongoing because that does take a lot of organizing. It takes time. It takes connections. It takes people. It takes money. All of that, which they've been able to establish, and they've been trying to export these blue, um, blue, um, these prints and plans um, to other cities, which is why uh, later on, after George Floyd died, and later months when there was rioting in Wisconsin, some of the people who were arrested there drove all the way or flew in from other parts of the country, like the Pacific Northwest. It's interesting to me to hear you talk about the potential origin of the mainstream of Antifa in the US being Trump's election back in 2016, 2017. What do you think Antifa thinks of Joe Biden? So it was probably a hope that after Biden won the election, perhaps the Antifa violence would calm down. Yeah, so that didn't happen uh, we're now um, many weeks until 2021, uh, months after Trump had won the election in November, and there's been more than a dozen riots that have happened in the Pacific Northwest. Um, some people were surprised. They thought, oh, these are, dumb, uh, these are Biden supporters. No, they're not, actually. If you look at what they say, look at the banners, for example, one of the banners that they carried on the, the inauguration day, riot in portland was a large one that said we don't want biden we want revenge and there's a large image of a question called rifle um if that wasn't subtle enough um and so they don't recognize the american government period they're working to overthrow it they don't recognize any president the legitimacy of any president so that means opposing before the current administration yes opposing trump but opposing any administration that would replace Trump anyways, because they don't see the U.S. government as legitimate. They view it as a fascist state that must be overthrown. So this is what I mean when I say that people on the mainstream left who have been feeding and feeding and growing this beast because they shared a mutual enemy in the Trump administration or against Republicans, whatever, well, now this beast is too big to slay. And we've seen the violence that they've carried out. They've attacked, they've assaulted the mayor of Portland. The mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler, is somebody who gave them the space to grow under his watch. And they turned around and have attacked him. They showed up to the homes of people on city council uh, in Portland, for example, who uh, voted against um, defunding the police. So, and the thing is, they're not getting held accountable when they're carrying out these criminal activities. It's not just that they're doing it, it's that they're doing it and then doing it over and over and over because there's no consequence. So one of the projects that I'm known for is getting the, uh, the public records of people who are arrested at riots. And we have now a sample size in just in Portland of around a thousand cases. And the overwhelming majority, by that I mean more than 90%, have their charges immediately dropped by the prosecutor, who is a politician, it's an elected position, who campaigned on a so-called progressive platform. And as soon as he came into office last summer, he uh, literally decriminalized felony rioting. That was one of the things that will be automatically discharged. So, um, like, this is the 
reality of what's happening in parts of America. Um, it's not hyperbole when the DOJ last year described some parts of the U.S. as an as anarchist jurisdiction, because you do have a breakdown of the rule of law and the system's not working, and these extremists are exploiting civil rights, human rights, to carry out their wanton violence in the name of free speech and right to protest. And unfortunately, they've been given cover. You know, I keep going back to the media because they wouldn't have been able to do so much damage if there wasn't this Antifa talking point that was mainstream, which claims that um, people over property, that the looting and breaking and starting fires and destroying buildings and businesses, that's not violence because uh, it's on an inanimate object. Like, this is, like, Portland is really a first world slum if you go to its downtown. Like, they're trying to create an environment where people don't have trust in law enforcement on one level and two, law enforcement just don't have the resources to even respond to crimes that are happening in the cities. We have a huge uptick in most uh, American urban areas in, in, in violence. Um, police officers uh, across many, many departments are resigning in droves or taking early retirement. So um, all of the conditions that allowed things to get so bad in 2020, they're all still there. And Trump was never a real variable. That was just a convenient excuse. That's terrifying, man. There's so many points that I agree with there, specifically talking about how allowing them to uh, embed in, create these organizational structures and also sort of the intellectual structures understanding how they need to develop and then writing up you go through basically a curriculum in the book of how they indoctrinate and train new members into antifa but it's kind of the same way that a cancer grows you know if it's just one cell that turns the other cells around it can attack but after a little bit of time if you get too many cells they can metastasize and actually turn into a genuine cancer and that's a much bigger operation to try and get rid of and it seems to be the same. I mean, a first world slum in somewhere like Portland. And wasn't it the homicide rate increased by 200%? The most it's been in a number of decades, something like that? Correct. That's right. That came at, during the height of the riots. So we've been having this unprecedented, unprecedented, unprecedented level rise in shootings and gun-related homicides in Portland and this is like Antifa have been celebrating this. They're really happy um, because the whole, they want, they say they want to abolish the American criminal justice system, abolish police and all that. But what they essentially want to be is to replace the police with their own paramilitary type groups. And um, the cities under weak police leadership under weak um, city council and weak state leadership have allowed them to do it. And so I'm not over exaggerating when I say that in last year in particular, when the riots were happening every night, parts of downtown were literally no go zones in that they had people patrolling their own militias, people who are armed with weapons, patrolling around to make sure that this 
huge part of downtown right outside of one of the, the courthouses that they were trying weeks on end to burn down, um, that the only people who were there were their allies and supporters and members. So they've attacked countless number of press. Um, as many people know, they beat me severely in 2019 and gave me a brain hemorrhage. So like, they don't even hide the extremism and the violence. It's not like they do it behind closed doors. They do it in the open and it gets captured on video. And still, people actually think that we're dealing with noble anti-fascists who are just opposing racists. You said something in the book that I really thought was a good a good quote. The intellectualizing of their arguments tries to mask the ruthlessness of their worldview. Because it does have this... You remember when you were in school and there was always that, that kid that, had le- that was a, a bit of a quicker reader and maybe had a greater grasp of language and would try and flummox people in a, a schoolyard dispute... So uh, actually, your argument doesn't have very much internal validity there, my friend. And you're like, it just smacks massively of all of the people who couldn't climb up a status hierarchy normally in school and are now trying to cover over what is incredibly ruthless, very militant, by using words that I don't think even they understand. They don't really make sense in the context that they're using them. They're born out of a bunch of very contradictory uh, and self-deceiving uh, philosophies, most of which I'm going to guess they might have read to, to tick the box on the curriculum and then left it. It seems very self-defeating and confused. Yeah, so their ideas are coherent in that they these ideas are coming from 20th and 19th century philosophers, anarchists and communists, radical thinkers. Um, if you look at the original text, they're very long and can be confusing. So what they what the Antifa do is they com- they compress those ideas into pamphlets, and this is becomes the backbone of their radicaliza- radicalization literature. That at all their rights they give out when they were in the autonomous zone in Seattle, uh, Chaz. Um, they were giving out this literature. And it's actually very similar to how, like, the Muslim Brotherhood will radicalize their members. It's compressing, like, larger texts into these very easily quick reads that intellectualize political violence, intellectualize violence against the state. Um, Some of them even give instructions on how to make weapons, um, how to seize territory. These are some of the things that I was seeing in Chaz. So I was really shocked that the press at the time was just completely overlooking this ideological extremism that was being preached in the open there. Um, and um, the, you mentioned the curriculum part, that's from Rose City Antifa, which is the largest and oldest Antifa organization in the US. They're in Portland, go figure. And you'll see that in every single way, they are a formal organization and, and the book details it, but like there's, um, a recruitment process, there's a vetting process, there's training, there's curriculum, there's reading, there's discussions. All these are done secretively. And uh, one of the places they did it was a feminist bookstore. So, like, they, they do a lot of activities in the open that we can see that are criminal, and they do a lot of other things behind closed doors, and this book shines a light on both. The pamphlets sound like TikTok for anarchist philosophers. 
not just condensing things down into the most easy to read palatable way that they can do it. You mentioned about the structure and I think that it's interesting looking at the structure of Antifa. Does it actually have a leader? Is it a single entity? It is not a single entity. And so when Christopher Ray, who is the leader, uh, the head of the uh, FBI, when he gave testimony and said Antifa is not an organization, he's technically correct, but he should have followed that up by saying, but there are many Antifa groups and organizations who do share the same ideology, whether they have Antifa in the name or not, and they are connected to net linking networks. So that's why you can have rioters from Portland or Seattle know how to link with the anarchist communists who are in Wisconsin, which is thousands and thousands of miles away, or link with the extremist Antifa in DC, very far away as well. So he should have followed up on that. So, But th that's the thing. It is networks of decentralized groups, which makes taking them out much harder. Um, but we're not even anyway even near that step because people law enforcement federal law enforcement um publicly at least i don't know what they're doing behind the scenes but i don't i don't think they're even at the stage of where they even recognize that there are these networks of groups that are connected that do encrypted communications through signal and telegram they do things that pretty much a lot of the jihadists do I mean, it's not a coincidence that their uniforms look similar. I mean, it's meant to instill fear in the public in addition to being able to carry out acts of criminality um, with the cloak of anonymity. So um, I, I'm, I've been disappointed in the, the federal uh, law enforcement response under the Trump administration, and um, I don't you know, I have no confidence that federal officials under the Biden administration. I was going to say, do you think it's do you think it's going to get any better? No. Okay, <laughs> you got to laugh, man. Yeah, it's um, it's so smart in one way. For all that you can see, it's self-contradictory, and they can't run a city to save their lives, literally, because people were dying inside of it, and they had no running water, and there was that plant, that vegetable plot that stopped within the space all of the plants died within two days and you know like, i can i can keep a plant alive for longer than two days right like and i'm i'm very not green fingered uh, but yet there's certain elements of their operation that are incredibly sophisticated and all of the benefits that you see from uh, decentralized cryptocurrencies for instance where it's not held on one server it's very very difficult to take down you have this security everything's backed up across multiple locations You've basically got that ideologically with Antifa. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the thing about the garden because it is, it's amusing, on, uh, you know, at, just looking at it. But also it's an anecdote that is actually what I've seen repeated over and over in that when it comes to building, um, being productive, anything like that, they cannot do it. And yet they claim they want to establish a utopia by abolishing uh, the system, the system being everything about the United States. But what they are really extremely good at is destruction and creating misery. That's what they uh, that's all they can really do. And that's so you notice when they 
are most successful. It's in carrying out acts of political violence and rioting and arson attacks and homicides. Um, that's what they're really good at when it comes to actually building their own communes that they purport to be working towards. It leads nowhere. You know, uh, Chaz essentially was a, it was a wealth, welfare state that depended on donations from foolish liberals who are pouring in tens of thousands of dollars into these Venmos and cash outs so that people would bring in bottled water and food 24-7 in tents. Do you think Antifa would have rioted outside the capital if Trump had won? Yes, I think the violence that we saw in response to um, the death of George Floyd would have been repeated and may have been even amplified because the, I mean, they were given uh, essentially the okay from Democrats. So uh, they would have had liberals who were supporting that right so Trump were to win. Um, and I think the, you know, one thing about the response to the election, let's say from the right, particularly on the 6th of January when there was a Capitol Hill siege, like, I um, I was furious seeing these hollow condemnations from Democrats, people who were describing it essentially as another 9-11 in America, when those acts of violence against the state and worse were carried out night after night after night in other major American cities by Antifa and BLM. These people were encouraging of it, or um, they actually even were, were sending out some of the links to the crowdfunding campaigns. Kamala Harris did that. People who worked on the Joe Biden presidential campaign did that. Um, so what happened at the Capitol should absolutely be condemned. But those same acts were done in Portland and worse, actually, because the people in Portland over time, they became more sophisticated and they kept returning. They would bring different weapons, they would bring explosives, they brought knives, they brought guns, um, projectiles. I write about all of their um, acts of terrorism in the book. And they even brought, I think what was most shocking was seeing them bring power tools so they could try to cut into the building. So that, And they tried on more than one occasion to barricade the building I'm talking about the federal courthouse in downtown. So this is a federal property in Portland. So that's comparable to the federal property in D.C. These people actually tried to barricade law enforcement, federal law enforcement inside and try to set the building on fire so they could kill everybody inside. This is the types of acts that they were doing and the way the media was covering at the time were describing law enforcement as Trump's uh, secret police, Trump's Gestapo, and occupying force, people who are hurting peaceful protesters. What's the difference? Like, I know that left at the moment seems to be in with the media and it's just a lot cooler and more easily accepted, the talking points that come from the left. It seems that the left is affiliated with compassion, whereas the right is affiliated with bigotry, at least in the legacy media. But what is it? Why is it that you get so much condemnation for the Capitol Hill riots, and you get so much omission for what Antifa were doing? It's because on many levels, 
I think there are a lot of Democrats who whose hatred for Donald Trump and his administration and his supporters overshadowed their support and love for their country and standing up for the rule of law and standing up for America's institutions. Um, I don't feel good saying that because, um, you know, I try to be bipartisan in my outreach. In a lot of this book, I'm hoping it will reach people on the left so they can recognize the threat that Antifa poses to American liberalism. Um, but just this pure hatred of uh, the former president and what they thought he stood for, just in their eyes, legitimized all of these acts of extremism. And so um, what's worse is I think like a certain precedent has been set. He's obviously, if you, um, I talked to people uh, who are who were or are sympathetic to the right wing siege on Capitol Hill, and one of the responses, and it wasn't, it didn't just happen in, in D.C. There were other similar, like violent protests at other state capitals by Trump supporters on that day and before that. And the people who are expressing support for that, their view is, well, if Antifa and BLM get to riot over their cause and nothing gets, they uh, face no legal consequence, they aren't condemned, they're praised, well, why do we have to be peaceful then? So this is the thing too, like Antifa creates reactionary forces as well. And they know that actually, which is why, I mean, everything about them, their existence, they have to justify by saying that they're in opposition to something. So I would say anti in front of their name. So they do work to radicalize people on the far right, I think. Um, they work to terrorize people at their homes, at their places of employment, get them fired, get them pushed off mainstream platforms and pushed into really scary places on the internet. And it's like Antifa are creating the things that they say they're there to fight, actually. Absolutely. I had a, I did a video about this the other week talking about the tit for tat mentality. You do this to me and then I come back a slightly, slightly more tough to you and then a little bit more tough to me and then so on and so forth. And it's just this endless spiral that I don't think is going to slow down. The elephant in the room is that fascists and white supremacists are not around every corner. Like they're, they're, they're just not. And the fact that you have this culpable accusatory game where you can say, well, that's that's because of your implicit white supremacy. That's because you're being willfully ignorant about it. That's essentially just um, allowing the theory to never be falsified. But they're not around every corner. And one thing that other people have commented on as well is if Antifa do get themselves to the stage where they really, really rile up the right, like there are some people on the right who are incredibly scary they're significantly more trained and they have a lot more guns. Like the people yep. on the right were originally the military th threat. A lot of them are going to be ex-military. Uh, I think you saw that with some of the stats from arrests over the last couple of weeks that a lot of them did have military backgrounds. If it comes to a war between the two of them, which hopefully it won't, but if it does, I really fear for Antifa's hopes because 
there's some lethal weapons coming from the right. Yeah, so they recognize that certain threat. Uh, they recognize that they ra- they're radicalizing people on the far right, and the far right, some of them are armed. But their response has been not to end the cycle of polarization, radicaliza- counter-radicalization. Their response is, we're going to arm up too. So you see, um, I write about in the book, like this, um, they don't issue guns or anything like that. At, at their rights, people are coming there armed. Many of them have been arrested for illegally carrying loaded pistols. Um, they carry rifles openly when they had chaz. For example, they have their militia gu- guarding their hard borders. And these people were armed with rifles, revolvers, pistols, etc. Um, part of Provocity Antifa, part of the training process included um, how to shoot guns and such. So um, they're preparing themselves for a war, not just a war against the state, but war against people on the far right or the, mil- the militarized right, whatever. So, um, and um, they're not afraid to kill. And, but um, as we've been discussing, they don't really have any metrics that are used to um, differentiate differentiate against people who are, let's say, a Trump supporter versus like somebody who's a neo-Nazi. They consider them all the same, and they think the response they can apply the same response to all of them, which is why last summer in Portland at the height of the riots, they one of the Antifa's volunteered security shot and killed a Trump supporter and then fled the state and went to hiding, uh, eventually was killed by federal authorities. Uh, he had a pistol on him at the time in the car where he was shot and killed. There was a rifle. So uh, I'm talking about Michael Rhino, but he's not the only Antifa who's killed. There's been other people as well, but we don't know their names or their stories because it doesn't fit this myopic focus that the mainstream press have on their reporting and extremism, which only focuses on right-wing extremism. And many times they over-exaggerate things as well, making people, because for example, this arming that Antifa does, they look at the reporting and all that and say, oh, see, look at the threat of the far right. Look at the threat of the far right. That's why we need to arm up. So, um, it's like the media has been so complicit in creating this whole context for political violence to thrive, particularly on the far left. And when it's time to report accurately on the extremism of Antifa or BLM, they're not there to do it. Um, when Antifa tell live streamers and journalists, you can't record us while we're writing, they'll listen. So a lot of the footage that we've been seeing, um, particularly in the past like five months or so, have been brave independent journalists who record secretively or with body cameras or they'll do it and then they get beat up for it. So, you know, whereas the legacy media, they'll, they won't go into there. They just won't even cover it. You know, they're still calling these rioters just protesters. You went undercover in the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone and you talk in quite detail about what it felt like. Obviously, the last time that you were in a group like that or one of the last times you were in a group like that, you were pretty badly beaten, then developed a little bit of 
uh, PTSD with regards to being in groups. And you said that one of your friends convinced you that you should go. Like, how much convincing did it take from that friend? And then can you tell us about what it was like walking into Chaz blacked up and obviously incredibly nervous? So after I was beaten in the summer of 2019, which, by the way, has led to no arrest. I still had had no justice. And that part of that beating was actually caught on camera. But um, that aside, um, I did develop an intense fear of being in public. Because when I was beaten, it was completely, it, st- it started from behind, punches to the head. And there was just, and I was in, in front of essentially the main police station in downtown. So what happened within eyesight of law enforcement and it was right by all these courthouses. So it should be an area that is, you would think is safe to walk down in, a, in the United States, but it wasn't. So, um, but uh, fast forward a year later and all the various therapies that I've had to address some of the um, cognitive, physical, psychological issues of the attack. Um, the, this friend of mine was just, um, he, was, he was encouraging me to go to Chaz because it was such like a surreal, like it was unbelievable what had happened. Like we knew from looking at the real coverage of what Antifa was saying and putting out themselves, that this was a, a territory that they claimed um, as separate from the US. It wasn't like just this block party that the press was um, claiming it to be. So I was like, for me, it was, I had that fear and I was like, but I had to deal with it in, anyway and to go up because I knew there wouldn't be very many people who would get the truth out. And um, I wore their uniform and it was very terrifying at times to be so scrutinized because just because you mask up and look like them, that doesn't make you like just one of them. They're suspicious because they actually do know, they recognize, for example, the voice and body movements of their comrades. So if there's somebody in there who's dressed like one of them, but for example, is not participating in rioting or violence, they question that. So uh, I spent five days, five days there, and unfortunately, on my last day, I was outed, um, and I had to flee for my life, literally, uh, from Chaz. And the sad thing is, this happened right in front of the uh, East Police Station, but it, it was an aban- abandoned station. It was one where rioters had um, caused the whole place to be barricaded up, and police had completely evacuated from this whole six-block area in Se- Seattle. So. Yeah, I spent uh, nighttime there, particularly. Oh, where were you nighttime. sleeping? Well, I, so I was, during the day, going to accommodation elsewhere, and then at night going oh, so you went Oh, no- so you went nocturnal for a week? Yes. All the interesting, all the interesting stuff happens at night. Yeah, because that's, that's when the, the press would leave. You know, the press would only stay there during the day. Ben and Jerry's who was giving out free ice cream. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. Free yeah. ice cream cones. That's right. They did that all during the day. At night, this is when you would see um, essentially warlord-like figures attempting to vie for control over the area. There was a, a, a it, drug kingpins and stuff like that, right? Rolling around in open back trucks. 
there's people with criminal back known criminal backgrounds who were going around with their own entourage of people who were carrying weapons yes fuck so what else did you see on the nighttime what did you see that hasn't been reported um fights were breaking out all over there wasn't unity in this area at all because you had essentially uh different buying ideologies so there were antifa there and they marked their territory all over with their symbols and graffiti calling for police to be killed the blm were more they viewed themselves as more along the lines of like revolutionary marxists like ones that you saw in the 70s like black panthers and stuff like that so they went down with wanton property destruction they didn't think that was useful so they did it, that did cause some friction and it boiled over as well and essentially um antifa won't admit this but they're they naturally racially segregated themselves in there the white people who were in antifa states stood um stuck together as a clique whereas the uh black marxists uh they were together in their separate area so you know for this area that claimed to be founded on anti-racism and social justice there was racial segregation and then on top of that they had a 100% black homicide rate 100% black shooting victim rate talk to me about how you got discovered of being Andy No. Um, that is a story that readers should look for in the book because I haven't really talked about it before. But I will say that it involved somebody that I had um, written about before, um, a transactional Antifa militant um, who has a criminal record and has been, I've identified as being at many riots in the Seattle area. And so this individual was really scrutinizing my social media to sort of try to um, work out and find out exactly where I was and all that. So these are, and it wasn't just this individual, she was connected to a whole network of these online anti-fire activists who were working, trying to identify exactly where I was. And unfortunately, um, through my own experience, left certain crumbs that I learned uh, to grow from. So they've become very, very good at identifying outsiders. It's actually really scary to go and record their rides, which is why you don't see a lot of videos coming out now, close up of them like destroying this businesses and properties. Um, it's been independent journalists who have come up with creative ways to record because it's so dangerous. Well, it's not just that they found you. I saw a video on your YouTube of a guy who looks a little bit like you walking down the street and everyone's sticking their fingers up at him. It's so bad that someone that looks like Andy No now is an enemy of Antifa. Yeah, so in Portland, I was undercover a lot, but they would never know when I was there when I was not. So I had to change my tactics and come up with different ways. Um, and so they were so overzealous in trying to track me down and find me that uh, I believe on more than five occasions they misidentified people on their side because that person was a male, male of East Asian heritage that 
you know, just based on sharing the same race as me, they thought was me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's been very embarrassing to them because, you know, they say they're anti-racist and they just, they think that every Asian male... The most male... pejorative thing in the world. Yeah, every Asian male is Andy No. There's this right. bit in that video where the guy's stood in front and he's saying, you do realize why you're here. You're you're being very racist and you're supposed to be anti-fascists. This is the second time that it's happened to me at a march. and this donkey of a girl stood next to the person holding the camera goes, well, it seems like you're doing it on purpose. And you're like, doing what on purpose? Being Asian. Like, it seems like you're doing it on purpose. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) It's unbelievable. Um, What about the reasons that young people are getting attracted to this? Like, when I was... 18 to 24 i wasn't really bothered about fighting for revolutionary capitalist throat tear down with anarcho communists like i just wanted to go on a night out why are people getting attracted to these movements so broadly um i would divide the antifa militants into sort of two kinds you have people one side of them who are um in white collar um, professions, and that's why I look into the backgrounds of the people who are arrested at these riots. Because, sh- surprisingly or not, many of them are professors, academics, they're journalists, um, they work in medicine. Um, it was professors, have been registered nurses, things that people who are like doing respectable jobs, people who have families, people who are attorneys. These are people who have. Uh, without exception, been exposed to radical left-wing ideologies through academe. And it's just slipped. I mean, it's the whole takeover of the American Academy um, from, you know, it's not just the social sciences where you see that, you know, you don't just have to be in um, a queer studies program or a um, indigenous studies program. You're seeing these ideologies also in medicine and such in engineering and this that so these are like the intellectual the people who have privilege of education and wealth and income who think that they are um being important allies in this fight against fascism and then the other side of antifa um includes people who are economically unstable they're vagrants many of them people dealing with mental health issues, people dealing with gender dysphoria. Disproportionately, you'll notice that many of them um, I've discovered have relatively recently transitioned from a gender to another one or back again or something like that. Um, So these are people who are not uh, vulnerable. Um, And some of the backgrounds actually are are very sad. And what are they looking for? Are they looking for belonging? Are they looking for a sense of cohesion? Well, this is the so the psychological aspect I think of why vulnerable people are joining is because they have real grievances, right? Let's say they are unable to find work, they don't want to work, they uh, have no money, they are dealing with all these issues personally, and instead of working on improving themselves and the people around them they're taking it out they're blaming society at large so these are people who feel 
really justified in their wanton destruction and looting and violence because they feel they've been wronged. And this is this is why they, this theme of revenge repeats itself a lot in their chants and all that. Um, um, th these are people who need help, and instead they've been pulled into a violent extremist cult that promises to give them, that gives them community, gives them a new purpose in life. Um, it also makes the villains into the heroes. I mean, I think these people probably recognize on one level that they're really hurting their communities when they do this. They go out to small businesses, but they've been so blinded by an ideology where they believe that now they're doing something virtuous by doing all of this. So this is the really dangerous part of Antifa is that it makes people think wickedness is good. And so they will stop at nothing to further their agenda. And that means killing when necessary, stabbing people when needed, beating them on the head and the face, including elderly people, elderly women who have stepped in to try to intervene. It is that element of the vulnerable, the homeless, the vagrants, the people with mental health issues being recruited, essentially, into, look, we have the answer. We can make you feel like you're contributing. We can make you feel a part of something. As you said right at the beginning, it's much e it's such a trope to say it's much easier to tear something down than it is to build something up. But it would appear that Antifa are pretty shit at doing anything that isn't tearing something down. But anyone can do it. Thankfully, breaking a glass window requires no qualifications and almost no training. I totally hadn't realized it's far too cliche to presume that all of Antifa are upper working class or middle class people from nice areas with good mums and dads who are just sort of luxury smashing their way through the afternoon. But the way that people who perhaps have the intellectual capacity to manipulate these less fortunate people and turn them into the vanguard of these movements, that is really insidious. That makes me feel quite uneasy. Yes, that's a great analysis. Yes, these people who, the intellectuals, the professors, the academics, those who are in stable backgrounds are using these vulnerable people as henchmen and goons to carry out acts of criminal violence. And on the rare occasion that law enforcement and prosecutors do something, it's another drop in the bucket if one of them happens to be sentenced to prison. What's the relationship between Antifa and BLM? They, so in 2020, there was, a, in my view, a fusion of the two movements. Um, and I saw that most clearly in Antifa Black Bloc volunteering as on security militia type uh, groups for BLM events. And... There was a lot of, there's been a lot of cross pollination since 2016 between these two different ideologies. Um, BLM, by this, the words and statements and self identification of their, their co founders, they identify as Marxists. And the people they venerate and celebrate are rev, rev, revolutionary Marxists, and some of them um, are fugitives to Cuba, like Asata Shakur, who was involved in the the murder of a state trooper decades ago. Uh, these are the type of people that they 
want to emulate. Whereas Antifa, the anarchist side of them is very important to it's it's for them it's the fusion of anarchy and communism together. So in many ways there are certain what you would think would be barriers to them coming together because the the Alam people are not trying to necessarily abolish the the state itself. I think they're working to try to replace all the institutions with their people so that they take power with the state. Um, but as of right now, they share a common ideology in their opposition to militant opposition to law enforcement, to the rule of law, to property rights, to um, the, the right in America, the conservative right. So they have enough common enemies and common goals right now that they are working together. But I think Chaz was a particular telling thing that when they, let's say, have, have had some success and they were forced to be together, that's when these differences came out. And um, But this is where Antifa has taken a lot of intersectional theory as well. So they were deferential to the black Marxist militants in Chaz um, just because they happen to be black. So, How do you mean they were uh, deferential? What, what were they doing? They were scared to openly challenge some of these warlord type figures who happen to be black because they didn't want to be perceived as racist within their own community. I was going to say, are they scared of challenging them because they're black or scared of challenging them because they're a warlord? They're, because they're black. Because that would that would undermine the grievance hierarchy that they're supposed to be in favor of. Correct. Yeah. So you can see their ideologies uh, is very biased nature, very destabilizing, even within the people who are on the far left. So, um, but as of now, they're uh, in unison for the most part, and Antifa's chants are no different from BLM chants. Um, the graffiti is no different, um, and they have a common enemy in taking down and destroying the founding ideals of America. When you think about some black values, though, I think uh, it doesn't strike massively for me with tearing down institutions. You know, you think about some of the things that were championing young black kids to get into, you know, that you can perform in academics, that you can go into whatever job role that you want, you can proceed and win within the structure as it is. If there's no structure left, then you can't win at anything. Yeah, which is why you see some uh, Black American community activists who have come out against the anti-violence in some cities, because they're like, what, what the hell are you doing? You're attacking businesses that are owned by Black people. You are hurting our community. You're economically affecting us during a time when COVID has already been so devastating. But these anti-food people, they see, they don't view those um, black activists as allies. They view them as people who, because they're still willing to work within the system and they're not willing to abolish it. They're not true allies. So they don't, they're not willing to um, heed some of their pleads for them um, to stop being so destructive. Uh, instead, they'll find like these token black anarchists or people of color anarchists and say, see, our movement is diverse and it's being led by people of color. 
what happens next? We're in beginning of 2021 at the moment. Biden's inauguration was recent. What's your prediction for the next year? Um, just a continuation of what we've seen before, just routine political violence in the streets and law enforcement not being able to respond and people not being convicted, much less uh, prosecuted. What would you their... do? Where, where would you go from here if you were trying to give some advice to policymakers, law officials, government officials? What would be realistic strategies that you could see to stem this tide or perhaps even reverse it? So... Um, the federal government um, in the past has de dealt with networks of criminal gangs like the mafia and other groups. And so there are already laws on the, on the books that I think could be applied in helping to break apart some of these networks. Um, that's one thing that can be done. I think another thing, though, um, and this can't be done without the involvement of liberals is for the left to systematically detach itself from the far left extremists. Um, I'm not sure if they're willing to do that right now because the, in my view, the Overton window of what was allowed on the left has moved pretty far out there. So, um, you know, no, mat no matter what happens this year, we already have this mainstreaming of this argument that property destruction and looting is in the cause of racial justice is just um, attacking and hurting law enforcement or trying to burn down government property for the cause of racial justice is right. So um, that claim has to be challenged from the left, but I don't see um, with the direction that they are continuing to move into hard left identitarianism. Um, I don't see them coming up to uh, expel the fringes, um, the fringe voices in uh, on their side. By Trump no longer being in power, though, there is one less very big thing for them to rally around as a unified force. Yes, but that's why in 2020, they weren't really rallying so much in opposition to Trump. They did that in 2016, 17, 18, 19. But in 2020, it was rallying against police. And policing is an institution that departments are going to be around regardless of which administration is in power. So that's why you see them rioting still after Biden won. I mean, CNN, there's a story where they we're interviewing people, why were you writing on Inauguration Day? And the response is, we're, we're still fighting for racial justice because the system itself is racist. So this is, it's like you said earlier, their claims can never be um, actually challenged in their mind. They can never be falsified. It's always like, you know, we're fighting for George Floyd. If it's not George Floyd, we're fighting against um, the law the institution of law enforcement, because that is a form of America, uh, modern day slavery. It's not that it's capitalism, capitalism, because that is in a system of white supremacy. So it's always something, you know, and um, all it takes is for the next viral video of some um, deadly encounter with law enforcement and a black person for thousands of leftists to take to the street and then for Antifa to exploit those gatherings to turn them into riots and mass looting events. Um, it's 
a, a playbook that they've mastered incredibly well and law enforcement have been neutered in their ability to respond because anytime police use uh, use force justifiably, you see what happens to them. More news stories, more more Correct. headlines. Yeah. I can't get over how clever the Antifa name is. The, it's like, it's the precise opposite of everything that they're actually doing in terms of the way that they act, but it immediately frames any press coverage or anything that anyone says with an immediate positive spin in their direction. It's like, why wouldn't I want to be anti-fascist? Of course I want to be, I want to be for fascists. Fascists sound awful, but what they're actually doing is just hiding behind a very clever name. Like if all it takes is to name myself not the thing that I am, it doesn't bode well for sexual predators, does it? Like imagine all that Harvey Weinstein needed to do was start a movement called Not a Rapist, and then he'd have been fine. Like That's not the way it works in any other uh, form of the world. But because the arrows of causation are so muddy, and because there is some grievance, there are justifiable problems in the world which need to be fixed. But when this is the problem and this is the response, it, uh, it often devolves into violence, which is what we've seen. Yeah, so I'm glad you focus on the name because a lot of people do get hung up on that. People on the left are like, I, like politicians, they cannot come out vocally in condemning Antifa because then it's the pro press fur. coverage, <laughs> correct, exactly. And it's such, I can't believe such a juvenile childish like <laughs> trick such has a, been able to pull a... so many people right and yeah. have made them cowards like i don't care what antifa calls themselves i just i look at their ideology i look at their actions and i look what they call for it it's they're what they do are acts of terrorism so um to me it's immaterial what they call themselves it doesn't matter and uh, unfortunately for my opposition to them have been smeared as a fascist propagandist and have been beaten and have had to go into hiding. Um, so, but um, I mean, what's important is that my my book hasn't been canceled, so it's still it's still out there uh, or will be released very soon. And um, I'm hoping people just become better informed on this threat that we're dealing with right now. Certainly will be unmasked inside Antifa's radical plan to destroy democracy will be linked in the show notes below. Where else should people go to check out your stuff? Uh, Andy-NGO.com is my website. Perfect. And thank you. Enjoy the remainder of your time in my lovely country. Thank you. Thank you.